So here we are, January 2022, and Europe teeters on the verge of war once more. Russia have amassed 100,000 troops at the border with Ukraine. In response, the West are arming Ukraine. This week, the US sent 90 tons of what they described as lethal aid to that country. Many European armies are being prepared. Many sanctions are being threatened. The Russians keep promising that they have no plan for invasion, and we must hope and pray that that proves to be the case. Now, I don't pretend to fully grasp what all this conflict is about, but as far as I understand it, it all boils down to borders, lines drawn on a map. Where does the influence of the West end and the East begin, and vice versa? All this animosity, all this fear and threat stems from the placement of walls and fences. Sadly, the animosity caused by barriers and dividing walls is nothing new. Our cottage on the Isle of Skye overlooks the sea to another island called Rase. Rase is a beautiful paradise of an island. But its history is also marred by the building of a wall. In the 19th century, a rich landowner bought the island and decided he could make more money if he cleared all the people off it and gave the land to grazing sheep. A familiar story from this part of the world. But this particular laird went to extreme lengths. He banned marriage on the island, so the population would begin to reduce in number. He cleared whole villages, burning them to the ground. And then he pushed all the remaining crofters up from the fertile land in the south to the barren rock of the north. And then he built a great wall. The whole width of the island to lock them in. You can still see that wall to this day. I cannot even begin to imagine the hardship that those poor people lived through. But I know this. Walls of this nature always create unhappiness and discord. Walls are built on resentment and increase animosity. They always cause pain. But just before we begin to kid ourselves that, oh, well, we would never build a wall, we need to be aware that even Christians can find themselves sometimes harboring similar sentiments. When I arrived at my first church as a naive graduate fresh out of college, I was surprised to find padlocks on the cupboards in the kitchen. And these puzzled me for a while, and so I eventually asked, What's locked away behind the doors? They were locking away the best china. The best plates and bowls, cutlery and crockery were only to be used by the Thursday lunch club. The leaders didn't want anybody else using it, certainly not the visitors who hired out the church premises. They would break it or leave it dirty or put it back untidily. No non-church people allowed. 
In fact, none of the more recent church members who had joined the church in the years just before I arrived were allowed to use it either. They hadn't proved themselves trustworthy yet. But do you want to know what the saddest thing about this distrust was? That lunch club had packed up five years previously. Five years before because of lack of people. Now there was nobody using the best china. So whether it be from the latest news, the injustices of Scottish history, or the mistaken attitudes that we all make at times, we all know what wall building looks like. We all know the suspicion that it creates. And we all know that deep down inside, this is not the way that things are meant to be. Something has gone badly wrong. Imagine a world where there were no more fences, no walls, no barbed wire, no borders. No armies training for war, no gangs on the streets, no divided communities. Just everyone living at peace. What would that world look like? What would that world feel like? It would be heaven, wouldn't it? But let's ask ourselves the question, what has to change to get to that? What has to change to make that vision of peace possible? And the answer is quite obvious, isn't it? It's us. Human beings. Human beings have to change. All of us. And this then leads us to exactly where our reading from Ephesians 2 began. Paul is describing the hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles are those people who came from outside of Israel. And Paul is at pains to point out that the trouble lies in their humanness. Unfortunately, this is a bit lost to us in our English translations, but in the Greek, he uses the same words to describe both Jew and Gentile. Gentiles are Gentiles in the flesh. Paul says. And then he says, Jews are circumcised in the flesh by human hands. And what he's trying to point out is that both Jews and Gentiles, different as though they may be, are both flesh and blood. They are both as human as each other. They are both equally frail and weak. They are both equally in need of help and the gospel. And that's an important lesson for us to learn, isn't it? That the people we resent, or the people that we look down upon, they're just as human as us. The refugees in the boats bobbing up and down on the channel, they're human. Those queuing up for benefits at the dole office, they're human. Those politicians from the parties we distrust, They're human. Russians and Ukrainians, Americans and Chinese, Scots and Englishmen, they are all human. Just as we are human. 
We are all in the same frail state. We all bleed when cut. We cry when hurt. We all need help at times. And Paul is at pains to point this out because it's from our humanness that sin comes from. That's what we were thinking about last week. Humans are quick to build walls and descend into prejudice. And in Paul's day, this was shown by the way that the Jews were treating the Gentiles. And very quickly in this reading, we see that they have resorted to name-calling and mockery. They had sunk to taunting the Gentiles as the uncircumcision. Now, I don't need to tell you that circumcision to the Jews was a very physical sign. A very physical sign of honour and privilege. If you were circumcised, you were part of the club. You were part of God's people. But if you weren't, you were definitely not. And even though the Jews should have known so much better, because right from the beginning of the Old Testament, God had made it clear that he'd chosen them to be his special people, only so they could bless the nations around them, the Jews were now deriding and mocking those nations. In the eyes of the Jews, the Gentiles, well, they had no relationship with God. God hadn't made his promises with them. They weren't part of the covenant, so they had no place, no hope. It's the story of history. The privileged and the powerful hounding those who they feel are beneath them. But Paul now has a bold announcement to make. God has had enough of this. As God has been watching on all this human infighting and wall building, he's formed a plan. If the problem lies in the Jews distancing themselves from the Gentiles, he's going to reverse that by drawing near to them. And if the underlying cause of all the animosity in the world is our human nature, God is going to reverse that by becoming human himself and by allowing his blood to flow. In Jesus, God came in the flesh. And now everything, Paul says, has to change. Verse 14 is incredibly bold. Let me read it to you again. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus Christ is our peace. To Paul, Christ and peace are virtually synonymous. To speak of Christ is to speak of peace. To speak of peace is to speak of Christ. It is the great heading for everything he wants to say. Christ is our peace. He made peace on the cross. He proclaimed peace into the world. Peace is emphatically what God wants for his people and his creation. But how has he made this peace? Well, Paul says he has made the Jews and the Gentiles, bitter enemies, one. 
And he did it by destroying the barrier, knocking down the wall of hostility between them. Now, what Paul has in mind here is the barrier that used to be found in the courtyard of the Jerusalem temple. A barrier a bit like the kitchen padlocks at my first church. It was there to separate the insiders from the outsiders. The inner Jewish area from the outer Gentile one. And just in case you're interested, there's a lot of archaeological evidence for this particular barrier. Archaeologists have found signs in both Latin and Greek warning Gentiles not to cross this barrier into the temple on penalty of death. If you read Acts 21, Paul himself was arrested for taking a Gentile across this barrier in the temple. So this wall in the heart of the Jerusalem temple itself was like the walls the world over. The wall on Rase, the Berlin Wall, the wall that Donald Trump's built recently. This wall is to keep people out. This wall is to formalise animosity. This wall is a symbol of all the law and its power to divide people. But to Paul, the wonderful news was that this wall has been destroyed. And therefore Jew and Gentile are to be separate no more. They are now one with equal access to God. And Paul is very specific on how this happened. In verse 15, Paul says that the wall was destroyed in Christ's flesh. In Christ's flesh. What does that mean? Well, it's the wonderful message of Christmas and Easter, all wrapped into two verses. We have seen how all the division in the world stems from our frail humanity, our weak, sinful human flesh. And the only way that God could solve that problem was to become that weak human flesh himself. And Jesus took all of the hostility of both the Jews and the Gentiles, all the hostility of human beings everywhere and from all of time, onto himself. Onto his human shoulders. So that when he died on the cross, it died with him. The human nature that causes so much pain and so much violence and so much war died on the cross of Calvary. And the language that Paul is using here is really, really strong. He says that actually Christ enacted an act of violence on hostility. In verse 16 it says he actively put it to death. Christ put violence to death so that it might never more be needed. For Paul, hostility and wall building has been utterly subversive. God has put it to death, killed it off through the death of his son on the cross. And that's important because it now means that for you and I, who believe in this Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, there is no longer any excuse for it. 
when we reach judgment day, there'll be no excuse for the walls and the padlocks that we have used. There'll be no excuse for the mockery and the resentment that we've laid out. Because God will just turn around to us and say, yeah, but I put that to death on the cross. Now, of course, there is more. The full reconciliation of the gospel only occurs when after this destructive act on the cross, this putting to death is replaced by the constructive act of life. After death, three days later, Jesus was resurrected. New life was formed. And by coming in the flesh as a very real human being, dying a very human death, when he comes back to life again, he comes back to life for us all. Paul says that Jesus died our death. So when he rises again, he rises again with our life. We are now one in the risen, living Lord Jesus. As we believe in Jesus, through faith, we are reconciled with him, joined to him. And as that happens for each individual believer, it happens to us all, and we are joined as family. It's like the outstretched arms on the cross gather us and pull us in to God and to one another. We become children of the Father, brothers and sisters, no matter who we are or what we have done. No exceptions. The old hostility has been put to death and a new humanity has been raised in its place. There is no more Jew and Gentile. We are all children of God. Peace has not just been pronounced. It's not just been commanded, although it is. It is made in Jesus giving his life and rising again. So where does Paul go on from here? Well, he's told this wonderful story about how Jesus came to forgive us all, how we're all equally reliant on him, and how in believing in Jesus, we are brought into this family. We are one in him. But he finishes by adding one extra note. We said at the beginning that what needs to change for peace to break out in our world is us, human beings. And that's where Paul ends. You see, once the old human ways have been put to death with Christ on the cross and we're given a new life, raised as a new creation when we come to faith in him, God then pours his spirit into us. We become the dwelling place of God. He lives within us. And as we are empowered by the spirit in our life, we are given the strength to live peacefully in the world, even amongst those who make our lives difficult. And this is why Paul now begins to speak about a temple. Everybody knew the Jerusalem temple was the place where God dwelt on earth. It was the place you could go to find his presence. Well, Paul is now saying God's presence 
is in us. The Holy Spirit is in us. And as we gather together as brothers and sisters from people of every background and nation and tribe and creed and skin colour, that temple is built up. God's Spirit is in us as individuals and as the family of God's people gathered together. And this new temple has a wonderful advantage over the old one. It's mobile. The old temple in Jerusalem was in one place. You can still go and see it. The crumbling walls are still there. But this new temple of God's people, Jew and Gentile brought together, goes wherever God wants it to go. And he calls us to go out and make peace. The peace that we have received through the cross with God and with each other. God now calls this mobile temple to take out into the world. To stretch to the farthest horizons so that all people may come to hear of the love and the peace that is available in God. Through the preaching of the word, through the ministry, through the love of God shown in action. As the gospel spreads and people give their lives to him, more and more walls come down. More and more people become brother and sister and peace spreads. Now you might say that all sounds a bit utopian. And in a way it is. We know that this process isn't going to be complete until the day the Lord Jesus returns. Until that day, our human flesh will keep causing its problems. But as Christians, spirit-filled believers in the Prince of Peace, we no longer have any excuse. Because the old has been put to death. And the spirit is alive in us. So we go out from this place to be people of peace, to put to death the hostility in our life and to reach out to those for whom barriers have risen up. I encourage us all this week to think practically, what does this mean? What does this mean? Which of my relationships are marked by hostility or distrust? Be that with family or friends or colleagues. Is there anybody who I'm avoiding at the moment because I just don't want a conversation with them? Maybe they've hurt me or I've hurt them. Is there somebody in this community who we look down upon? We still need to take Jesus to them. Is there anybody in this church who we don't know very well? Can we knock that wall down? We are called to do everything we can to make peace. Because that's what God has done for us. Christ is our peace. And peace is what God wants.